It's time for Legally Speaking with our regular guest, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. On the agenda, I'm reading Court of Appeals certifies a class action against ICBC for making payments to the B.C. government for medical expenses that it wasn't required to ele- Like, There's a lot here. I didn't think we could sue ICBC because <laughs> it was no fault. How does all this work now? There's a lot going on here. One of the big issues that kind of overrides this particular case is a sort of a issue about crown corporations and how they're used by uh, governments, provincial and federal. Um, and one of the things that goes on there is that it is incredibly tempting uh, for a, a government to uh, dip in to money that might be available in a uh, crown corporation. Um, and uh, we've seen that in the past with things like the government extracting money from uh, entities like uh, ICBC or BC Hydro, requiring them to pay money to the government. Um, and by doing so, the government can try to appear more financially uh, responsible by saying, look, we don't have a deficit. Uh, there just happens to be a great big loan taken out by BC Hydro <laughs> or that's just some problem with the ferry company, whatever that is over there. We've balanced our budget. It's great. And so that is extremely tempting. It's a uh, it's a uh, uh, honey jar that uh, the provincial government has, uh, uh, of all stripes, dipped uh, into uh, over the years, and often there are implications of that. And we've seen that, uh, for example, with uh, ICBC over the years. This particular piece of class action is a really interesting one uh, because it's, it has a, an element of uh, the provincial government uh, allegedly dipping into the uh, uh, you know, the honey, sweet honey of the money that ICBC has. Uh, and the class action was premised on the base, is premised on the basis uh, that ICBC was gratuitously paying money to the provincial government and has been doing so apparently for, allegedly, for a very long time, decades, uh, to pay for medical expenses relating to car accidents and injuries when there was no legal obligation to do that, just gratuitously paying the the money to the province. And uh, one of the uh, arguments being made in this case um, is that that amounts to a tax uh, which is imposed on uh, people who are paying ICBC insurance fees uh, because you've really got the argument is, look, you've got the uh, Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, which is a monopoly by legislation, you must buy your car insurance from it. Uh, and uh, the argument is it's charging higher rates in order to subsidize the medical system uh, by uh, paying it uh, when it uh, performs medical uh, services when there's no obligation to do that. And so the argument is on behalf of people paying ICBC insurance, they're effectively being taxed by the provincial government when that tax hasn't been authorized by the legislature. Hmm. So the argument is that's an unconstitutional tax uh, imposed on ICBC ratepayers. Interesting. The other the other group uh, being uh, sought here, and they're trying to go at it from both sides, is that people who are uh, very seriously injured, uh, and this would be an issue prior to no fault, I mean, we're now in the land where we don't care really who caused the accident, <laughs> right? It just, these things just happen. Uh, but prior to that, uh, when we did care about uh, who was causing the accident, even if you were the careless person who, you know, rear-ended somebody and, and injured them, we would still help the rear-ender, right, the person who caused it. And they would get things called Part 7 benefits. And Part 7 benefits would pay for things like uh, 
you know, medical expenses or equipment or lost wages or things like that. Uh, and so we would pay them even for the reckless uh, driver. When you, when you hear about uh, the language the provincial government uses to describe no-fault as enhanced care, really what's been enhanced is the uh, care and money provided to the person causing the accident at the expense of the person who gets piled into, right? Because now we don't have to figure out who caused the accident. We just pay everyone uh, the same. Uh, and so... The uh, argument on behalf of the uh, people who were causing car, caused car accidents but still were getting benefits from ICBC for serious injuries in the past is that the amount that they would get uh, had a limit. Uh, and uh, ICBC was apparently deducting these gratuitous payments made to the provincial government from the amount of money they would give out to those people to pay for things they needed as a result of their car accident. And there was no authority to do that, and they shouldn't have been doing it. And so that's the other group that the, uh, they sought to be certified here because it had an impact on them. On that one, ICBC argued that, oh, yes, that may have happened, but they described it as uh, something that occurred arose from by error from time to time. <laughs> that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't get much uh, uh, traction. And both at the trial level, now the Court of Appeal, they said, look, this is quite arguably a systemic thing that they were doing, paying money to the province to cover the health expenses and then improperly reducing how much they would uh, give to the people who were hurt in the car accidents. And so that was certified by the uh, trial uh, judge and has been uh, certified by the Court of Appeal. The issue with respect to everyone else, everyone paying too much for their insurance because ICBC has been gratuitously turning money over to the provincial uh, government uh, to pay for medical expenses, the provincial government uh, and ICBC, who are the defendants to this, uh, argued uh, that uh, the uh, ICBC was uh, not a a government uh, entity. Uh, and therefore, this wasn't some kind of an unconstitutional tax. This was just some kind of a fee that this thing that just happens to exist out there is charging. Um, and that didn't get much traction in the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal concluded that the fact that the uh, government gives ICBC a government-granted monopoly over car insurance and the only entirety of ICBC is at least very arguably makes ICBC a government entity. This isn't just some private insurance company that happens to have gratuitously paid money to the provincial government, right, as some windfall. And so that didn't get any traction. And so the Court of Appeal has now certified both of those uh, classes uh, for the class action, the class of people who are the injured people who said, we were denied the amount of uh, benefits we should have received because they deducted uh, money that they gave gratuitously to the provincial government from how much we could get. Those people have been certified. And then the other group, which the Court of Appeal has certified, is everyone else uh, who is paying ICBC fees uh, on the basis that uh, the uh, basis of the argument that this is a uh, amounts to a tax not approved by the legislature as would be required for a tax. Uh, and uh, they uh, didn't uh, have uh, much time uh, for the argument uh, that this is just some non-government entity that might have done this, and how is this the province's uh, responsibility, which, to my mind, does seem like a pretty compelling argument when you give a legislative monopoly to an insurance company and you own that entire insurance company and you control it in every possible way to make an argument that that's not a government entity Uh, That's just some sort of independent business that might be uh, applying a fee or something 
just doesn't seem to be a, a very compelling uh, argument. No. Uh, and so this will now be allowed to proceed, and we will eventually get a determination uh, as to whether uh, this is, uh, this does amount to a uh, uh, unconstitutional tax imposed by ICBC. The other interesting argument, I should say, that doesn't appear to have been the focus here, because I think the focus of the litigation is saying, look, ICBC is just the government, right? It's just a part of government. It's not an independent thing that just happens to have handed money over. And that's, I think, sort of central to the argument that this is an unconstitutional, unapproved tax when you just have the entity that you own and control completely and grant a monopoly, pay you money that it wasn't required to pay you. That's really the heart of it. But there there would be an alternative view of it uh, that... If this isn't uh, a government entity, if it is just some free-floating entity out there that just gratuitously pays money to the government, good luck, good news for the government, there would be another issue about if they're required to do that, like uh, whether that would amount to an uh, effort at indirect taxation, which isn't something a provincial government is permitted to do. In the Constitution Act, we permit the federal government to collect taxes by essentially any means, but provincial governments can only collect taxes that are direct taxation. That is to say, taxes that are paid for by the person who is required to pay them, Uh, which you might then think to yourself, well, what about the provincial sales tax? How does that work? Because that's a uh, private company that's uh, charging you money and passing it along to the government. Doesn't that seem kind of indirect? Yeah. And the... The heads, the the legal uh, uh, gymnastics that are required to make that even uh, lawful are that businesses are deemed to be an agent for the provincial government in collecting the provincial sales tax, and to cement that in a legal way, what the province does when a business is required to charge UPST and pass it along to the government, the government says, well. That's not an indirect tax on you by taxing the business. That's just the business doing, acting as our agent to collect the taxes from you. And the province then pays a really tiny uh, amount of commission to private businesses that are required to collect PST. It's like a small percentage. It amounts to a very tiny amount. But then the argument is, hey, this isn't just this isn't an indirect tax. This isn't a tax on one person paid by another because we can't do that. This is just a tax where that business is our happy agent uh, collecting uh, PST for us directly. Uh, And look, we're even paying them a tiny commission to do so. And so that's the basis upon which a provincial sales tax uh, remains inside constitutional bounds. And so uh, that's the other interesting thing. If the government's argument here is that ICBC is just a kind of a free-floating non-government entity out there at arm's length, then what's going on here is you've got uh, this free-floating entity uh, collecting uh, money from uh, ratepayers uh, and passing that along to the government in a gratuitous way. And so there may be a head-scratcher there about whether that amounts to a uh, an indirect form of taxation. But the central argument here is, no, it's not that. This is really just an organ of the government uh, and they're having the organ, their own or- monopoly organ of the government collect money from you and pass it along to the government to use for whatever purposes, and that's not authorized by law. So very interesting case, uh, and it will really be one to keep an eye on because it could have very big implications because this has been going on allegedly for decades. Yeah. Wow. Really interesting. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, we'll continue right after this on CFAX.
Back to Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, a Victoria car dealership's liability, it says here, upheld on appeal for an accident in a car it lent to a potential purchaser despite a, quote, bill of sale created to show the police if the potential purchaser was stopped. What is happening here? Uh, nothing good. All right. <laughs> so- the, the, the case is a tragic one, and it is local. It's uh, from Central Saanich, uh, and uh, there were uh, two women, who, uh, sisters, who wrote for a walk back in 2018, uh, and without warning, a jeep uh, hit both of them, uh, killing one of them, oh my and, God. and very, very seriously injuring uh, the other uh, sister who survived, but oh. uh, life-changing, catastrophic injuries. Oh. And the issue here became... Uh, liability for the uh, car lot uh, that uh, w- <laughs> either, depending whose side of it uh, you, you were on, was the owner or not of the vehicle. Uh-huh. And the reason that's important is that the uh, Insurance Motor Vehicle Act, uh, at the time of Section 86, yeah, can make the owner of a vehicle liable uh, for uh, accidents, uh, damage caused by it, when they uh, expressly or by implication permit somebody else to use it. And the idea of that section is you want people to be responsible when they're letting other people use their car, right? If you know your you know, uh, uncle is a, a maniac driver or is <laughs> drunk or something, you say, yeah, go ahead and take my car, and it crashes into something, the idea would be to make you responsible uh, for that. Although, once again, I guess we're now in the land of no fault, so I'm not quite sure where that <laughs> lands now. But that was the concept at the time. Uh, and so the uh, status of this vehicle was a really interesting one, and, this, and it provided an insight into how this car dealership operated, which apparently wasn't unique to this car dealership. And the way it worked is somebody would walk onto the lot, a salesperson would go and greet them, ask them some questions about how much they wanted to spend and how much money they had, uh, and then they would essentially try to sort of get the person to sort of select a vehicle and at all costs try to prevent them from leaving without that car, even if, for example, they weren't able to sort out financing for it. Um, and so that was what happened here. This woman attended this car dealership uh, and expressed uh, an interest in this Jeep, uh, but it was unclear whether she was going to be able to qualify to finance it on terms she could afford but the, in order to try to make the keep the sale process going, the dealership would try to make sure that the person left with the thing and will try to get that financing worked out. Uh, and so what the dealership did uh, is that rather than um, uh, using dealer plates, I guess they didn't have enough of them or didn't want to use them, they tried to make use of a, a section uh, or provisions that allow in some limited circumstances, I should caution some limited circumstances, read all of them, uh, to transfer plates to a new vehicle you've purchased from your existing car for 10 days. In hmm. some limited circumstances, you can do that. And so the dealership was wanting to use that l- loophole to allow this woman to just don't let her leave without the car. <laughs> we want her to buy this Jeep. And so they told her to move her plates over to the Jeep and then said, well, we'll fill out this bill of sale. And the idea there was that if you could, one of the requirements to transfer your plates is you must have bought the new vehicle. You can't just put your plates on anyone else's car and drive it around. There'd be chaos. And so they made up this thing called a bill of sale. And the idea was, well, just keep that with you. And if the police pull you over and ask you about these plates, what they're doing on this car, 
your response is, well, I bought the car. Look, here's my bill of sale. That was the concept. But it was very unclear whether this person would ever actually be able to purchase the Jeep. They were working on it, but it hadn't come about. Then what happened is the physical Jeep was at this woman's house. I think her husband was there. Husband fell asleep, and unbeknownst to them, the, the driver, who was impaired, took the car, drove, and caused this horrific accident, uh, resulting in some the financial word, which wasn't even an issue, was some $4 million. Again, back is $4.3 million. Just catastrophic injuries for the uh, woman who survived. Um, and so then the issue became, okay, well, who's potentially responsible to pay for that? And the, not surprisingly, the person who irresponsibly uh, drove, fell asleep, and crashed into them didn't have $4.3 million. And so the argument was, well, the car dealership is still the owner of it. They can be the person who's responsible under that section of the uh, act. And that's what the trial judge found. And that's what was being appealed to the Court of Appeal. The uh, the dealership was saying, no, 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 this was just this was actually sold to this person. It wasn't ours. We can't be liable under that uh, section uh, to try to avoid having to pay the $4.3 million. Uh, that did not work. Uh, the uh, Court of Appeal uh, interpret was, had to interpret what that section meant, and it uses language about the owner in possession and then language about uh, permission to have something expressed or implied. And the court of trial judge and the Court of Appeal analyzed, well, what was the legislative purpose of that section? Why do we have that? How should that be interpreted? Should it be interpreted in a very narrow way? Uh, on the idea that, well, you don't physically have the car in your possession anymore because the dealership did this maneuver with the license plate swap and the bill of sale to show the police? Is that what, should that be included or excluded? And the Court of Appeal came to the conclusion that the trial judge was right, uh, that the uh, section was intended to be uh, uh, meaningful uh, because it's intended to encourage people to be careful uh, before they lend their vehicle to someone. Uh, and uh, that, I think, is an important uh, idea, and it's another example of what's lost in the land of no fault, right? You want people to exercise some judgment before they allow somebody else to take their car, right? You should want to make some inquiry. That person's safe? Are they sober? What's going on over there, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyways, we, we seem to have done away with that, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but here, because the case predated all of that, the woman was able to sue, and there was uh, liability, and the Court of Appeal has upheld it. And, and so that sales process of uh, here is just a, well, something we'll call a bill of sale, we'll swap your plates over, take the thing home, just for heaven's sakes, don't leave this car lot without a car, uh, is not a sound uh, practice, uh, because as they discovered here, the implications can be very large. Uh, and so the uh, result of this is that the dealership is uh, on the hook for the $4.3 million in uh, damages caused uh, when their, uh, they still owned it, uh, Jeep uh, was driven in that way and crashed into these two women causing that uh, terrible outcome. Uh, and so that's the uh, that's the outcome from the Court of Appeal in terms of liability for uh, lending your vehicle and uh, don't rely on some uh, the document uh, wasn't enough to uh, avoid that. Interesting. And we've got uh, just over three minutes left. And up next, it says the Court of Appeal changes the test for when a civil case can be dismissed for delay. 
Yeah, that's right. And so there are a couple of things that are bound up in this. One is that particular outcome. Uh, and the other is that worth commenting on is how that happens in court when the law changes, right? Mm. Uh, and the origin of this thing was a piece of complicated construction litigation involving all of these entities suing over an allegedly defective HVAC system in a building. That's really the background of it. Mm-hmm. But the, the specific uh, application here was by one of the entities being sued saying, well, hey, you haven't gotten on with this in a timely way. The the, uh, litigation was started in 2019, and uh, nothing had happened uh, all the way up to, uh, you know, now. And so they said, hey, this should be dismissed for want of prosecution. This is just taking too long. They haven't done anything. Uh, And in civil cases, parties have to make things happen, right? If you're suing somebody, that's kind of your responsibility. Serve them documents and fix a court date. Nobody's there nannying you. You've got to get on with it. You're the one suing. Move along. And that wasn't happening here. And so the test has been uh, sort of a, they would look at, uh, first of all, was there a, was the delay inordinate? Was it inexcusable? And then the final part was, was there prejudice to the defendant? That was a standalone requirement. And here, the judge hearing the uh, initial application found that, well, there's just no prejudice to this corporate uh, defendant. You know, there can be prejudice when things like witnesses might forget or you might lose documents or things like that. There can be real reasons why delay can cause prejudice. But here they found, well, there's just no prejudice. You know this is coming. You're a corporate entity. Yes, you're kind of grumbling about this being slow, but you're not really prejudiced in your ability to defend this claim over the allegedly faulty HVAC system. So your application for uh, dismissal for not getting on with it is self-dismissed. They appealed that to the Court of Appeal, and they said, well, there should be a change to the test. And when there's some issue about whether the existing law, and in this case, a law with respect to that test for dismissing something for want of prosecution, might be changed, the Court of Appeal will, as here, often sit as a five-member court. There's no legal requirement to do it. That's just a matter of practice. The Court of Appeal can sit with three members, but often they'll sit a larger panel if they're kind of reconsidering whether a existing legal test should be updated or changed. And so that's what they did here. And indeed, they found that it should be changed. And they found that those first two parts of the test were, were good and should stay. Was there an inordinate delay and is it inexcusable? But that final part, which was a standalone issue of can you show there is prejudice, has been changed. And so now the it's a broader issue about whether dismissing it would be in the interest of justice which can include a concept of prejudice, but it can also be broader than that because the Court of Appeal found that there is a general obligation to maintain confidence in the civil justice system, that things move along. Yeah. And there's a public interest in that. You, even if the party isn't prejudiced, it's not good for the system generally and confidence in it if people can just drag their feet for years and years and years. That should there should be authority to dismiss cases even if you can't show you were prejudiced because that undermines public confidence in the justice system. Hmm. And so the five judge panel changed the test. That's the new test. The test got changed, but it didn't help the defendant here. They found this was a complicated case. The public confidence wouldn't be undermined, and so it wasn't dismissed. The test changed. They got that much, which will have long term implications. But these one of this for, this corporate entity applying for the application, didn't get the stay in this particular case. So that's the new test. It's broader than whether there's prejudice, and it now incorporates a public interest consideration because we all have an interest in these things being resolved and not just lingering out there for years and years. Indeed. So that's the new test. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking. Merry Christmas and all the best to you and yours, Michael. We'll talk to you in a week. 
uh, thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Talk to you in a week. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Quick break. We're back right after this.